It's that time of the week again. You are about to participate in a great adventure. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop? What the hell do you think you're doing? It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris. Oh my God! As they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. It's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. As well as the music of today. Excuse me while I whip this out. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Who are those guys? Digital Kill the Radio Star starts Come on, quit stalling! All right, everyone, welcome back to another edition of the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. I am your host, David, and uh, Chris is sitting this one out with me this week, but don't worry, I have a more than capable fill-in for him. Uh, first, want to thank everybody that's been uh, listening to our last few episodes from the Nashville Rockin' Pod with uh, David Ellison and Jack Gibson, two uh, very prominent bass players in the, um, in the thrash world. We really enjoyed those uh, interviews, and uh, we really appreciate all the new listeners that have come on board. If you are new to us, you can find us on Twitter at Digital Killed and on Instagram at Digital Kill the Radio Star Podcast. And on Facebook, you can find our Facebook page, Digital Kill the Radio Star Podcast. And as always, you can find us on all your streaming uh, outlets that you like to uh, go to to find your podcast. Um, we will have still two more interviews to drop from uh, the Rock and Pod Expo. And then after that, uh, we'll be done with those. And we're inching closer to episode 100. Uh, of our podcast and we've already recorded that episode with a very special uh, uh, guest and a really cool interview somebody that honestly doesn't do a lot of interviews and so it was a real honor to uh, get to talk to that gentleman but that'll be probably in a month or so we'll have that up so uh, you know as you know a lot of times I have guests on here to talk about specific albums Uh, Chris isn't really big on doing uh, album episodes so that's fine that's cool Um, I can always find somebody to do those with so uh, I found somebody, again, somebody that you're very familiar with. Just heard him a couple of weeks ago on our Alice in Chains episode. So uh, welcome back, uh, Kyle Null, to the podcast. Thanks so much, man. I'm looking forward. I'm always happy to talk about a single album uh, to to its, all its depths. So totally excited to be here, man. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited to do this one as well. We're going to be talking about the most expensive and maybe one of the most divisive records that have uh, ever been recorded and that is Chinese Democracy by Guns N' Roses. But first, uh, Kyle, I wanted to tell you some um, news that I learned when I was at the uh, Rockin' Pod Expo. You did the um, um, Alice in Chains podcast with me, mm-hmm. and I told you I had met Toby Wright, who produced several of their albums and engineered a couple of them the last time we were there. And he had told me that his greatest achievement was uh, mixing and recording the um, 
Allison Chains Unplugged album. And at that point, you told me that he that that album was used by a lot of audiophiles to kind of calibrate their system and test their system. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get to interview him again this time, but I did catch him standing over by himself. And so I just walked over and, and talked to him for a few minutes and um, talked to him about that specific album. And he kind of dropped a bombshell mm-hmm. on me. He recorded and he recorded that album, you know, recorded the the performance, sent it off to get it mastered, and the guy that was going to master it sent him back and said, "I've tinkered with it. I can't make it sound better than you did." So, an album that a lot of people use to test their their vinyl system was never mastered. Yeah, I was totally floored when you told me that, man. I mean, just in it, it makes so much sense to me. But at the same time, can you imagine dialing it in that good, you know, or that well? To, to, to have a mastering engineer not be able to do anything to make it better, not to, to, to better balance it out or anything like that. And you were telling me something interesting that I wasn't, I mean, maybe I was aware of it, just I could have, I could have deduced it, I guess you could say, um, that MTV, they, they don't let you splice in the various cuts, right? So they, they had to do five and six takes of some songs. And I had read in Allison Chain's book and several others, that had done MTV Unplugged, that they said, yeah, oh yeah, that, that one took us seven takes. And it didn't really occur to me why, to be honest. Um, I mean, I know they wanted one clean take, but I didn't realize there was some some um, some thought around that. So I guess in one argument is he had time to dial it in because he had several takes, but to, that whole album sounds consistent. Usually a, a mastering engineer's job is to make, and we'll talk about this a little bit with Chinese Democracy, this album was recorded, you know, Chinese Democracy was, what, 14, 15 different studios across the U.S. across 10 different years. And so that mastering engineer's got a heck of a job to try to balance that out to make it sound uniform, you know. Uh, so I was totally floored when you told me that that, that, that was the case, you know. Um, but yeah, and I'm also, uh, same subject, I'm kind of jealous of you going to Rock and Pot. I'm totally bummed that I didn't go this year. I really want to make it a priority next year to go, considering all the cool people you got to meet. And I mean, I don't know how you're how you're kind of seen as a you know as a go to person there, you know, from the from the folks that you might just see standing at a bar or something. Well, yeah, it was it was a great experience, and it, it was bigger than it's ever been. Next year, it's going to be even bigger. Um, they really did a good job of having everything at the same hotel, even the the concerts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the Nashville Airport Marriott. It was a really nice hotel and a really nice kind of convention center, I guess, big ballrooms and stuff like that. But yeah, it's going to be bigger and better next year. I think it's a great outlet for musicians because there were, I think, 35 podcasts there. So you can spend a couple hours being interviewed and get your information out to millions. Yeah. And it's people that are talking to you. It's not like if you go to a radio station, the radio station may not have a clue who you are. Somebody's just prepared some stock questions or the publicist has said, hey, ask him about his new album. And for instance, uh, Jack Gibson from Exodus, um, I, I'm not all that familiar with Exodus, but Chris really loves them. And so Chris really prepared for that interview. And when we got done, he was like, wow, man, you asked me some questions nobody's ever asked me before. So I think they appreciate most of the people there. It's mm-hmm. not going to be the standard, you know, what's your favorite album? What's the new album sound like? It's re- And I, I've listened to like some of, like some of the people... Uh, that we interviewed, they're they're interviewing other podcasts, and really nobody's asking the same questions. Yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming that wasn't uh, that tiring for them, but it was a good time. I'd love for you to go next year. I think you would uh, enjoy it and and have a good time. Uh, also, 
last night Kyle came over and uh, as we do before we do these podcasts, we'll sit around and listen to some vinyl and um, uh, listen to that and talk through that. And we, I, I, I bought some um, some beer yesterday and it was entitled Guns and Rosé. Guns and Rosé, yeah. And so uh, it's neat, interesting because I also read that day that whoever bottled that beer, it's Oscar Brewing out of well, they've got a place in Colorado. They've got a few other. I think there was one in Austin, Texas, and one in the east East Coast somewhere. But um, but it's Oscar Brewing. Oscar Brewing. They lost a lawsuit against Guns N' Roses, so that can no longer be made. So uh, Kyle and I each kept a unopened can to have because that's probably going to be a collector's item, but. Um, not the best beer I've ever had. No, it was. A, I mean, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that we have one to keep, and I can remember that by. Um, definitely, I'm definitely proud of you for thinking of us. <laughs> have you tried any other beers like Iron Maiden's beer or um, Megadeth's beer? I tried to get Iron Maiden's. I mean, I was I was I wanted to try it for a while, and I just never saw it anywhere. And I was finally in a a bar in Nashville, about to go see. I think we were about to go see either Pink from with my wife or. Um, Heck, it may have been Guns N' Roses, to be honest with you, because we saw we, we were in the pit for Guns N' Roses for that show. And I saw it behind the bar. Like, they had, like, a, you know, one of the, they had one of the cans behind the bar. And so I asked them for it. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, you need to try that for sure. And so um, they went to go try to find me one. And I guess the one that had been sitting on the bar had been there for a couple of years, and so they didn't give me that one. Um, they said, I'm sorry, we're out, you know. And, then, of course, it was hot. It was on top of the bar. So I never tried that one. Um, I volunteered at a, brew, a beer fest, uh, actually, Jackson just a couple of weeks ago, or about a month or so ago, and um, the brewing company, how was the name? They have the Metallica one, and I'm forgetting the name of the, the company Stone, now. Stone, I think. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And so um, so I've had the Metallica one, and I'm, I want to say that I've had one more, but I, I just don't recall. I remember it being, you know, a band, but I just don't recall what it was. So far, they've been, none of them have been my favorite. Like, it's just, it's kind of like, you know... You, you don't go to a, eat at a Hard Rock Cafe for the cheeseburger. You really just go for the atmosphere and for what it feels like and maybe even the t-shirts that is somehow more popular than their food. That's kind of the way I felt about it. The Megadeth beer has won a ton of awards. I've never I've never seen it, but it's won a lot of awards. And I think they hired a, a really good brewmaster or whatever to do that one. But well, that I, seems to be the way that you diversify <coughs> your investments as a, as a rock star. I mean, think of what we got... Sammy Hagar. No, that's not a beer, but I mean, it just in terms of... You got Sammy Hagar with Cabo Wabo Tequila. tequila and the beach rum. It, oh, I didn't know they had a beach rum, too. Um, you've got people like Justin Timberlake. He released a vodka, 901 Vodka, which is the area code for Memphis, which he was he's from Bartlett. I think he's from Bartlett or around that area, um, uh, Tennessee. You've got Ciroc, which is uh, P. Diddy's vodka. Um Meg, uh, Metallica has got blackened rum, whiskey, whiskey, blackened whiskey, and so I mean it seems to be because uh, I mean I think Sammy Hagar sold his for several hundred million dollars. Yeah, he know? said he made more money selling the tequila brand than he ever made playing music. That's nuts. I mean it's totally nuts. And to now me. he's got the um, the rum. Yeah. That so Santana, Santana's another one. I was at a tequila bar in New Orleans, and we uh, the I mean literally they just had. 80 to 100 tequilas behind the bar and um, me and my buddy just wanted to go try them out and see which ones we'd like the best and that sort of thing and so we, we had purposefully and, you know you, you get a shot at a bar it's going to be 15 20 bucks like for premium kind of, kind of stuff so we were prepared to spend 100 bucks each just to try stuff out 
And um, when we went through the different, you know, one shoot, you know, the person would tell us about them. And, and you know, I've had the George Clooney kind of, I think, as a tequila. It's like, eh, it's okay, you know. But um, when we got to the last one, she said, now this one, I think you're going to love this one. This one is by Carlos Santana. And I immediately, in my head, just kind of thought, oh, this is not going to be good. I mean, I've eaten at a Planet Hollywood before. It wasn't good. I mean, this is just, it's not going to be good if he if he if he's got his hand. Not that I don't like you know dislike Santana. I just had that feeling that it was going to happen. The best one I had, Casa Noble, best tequila I've ever had in my life. Really? Yes, absolutely. So um, so kind of like that 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 was a little bit of a taste of of. Uh, I feel like I need to approach things differently now. So I'm like I'm totally open-minded about if I can ever try the Trooper beer from Iron Maiden or, or Megadeth stuff. Um, but anyway, I just think that's, that's an interesting path that musicians take, you know, is to, is to start up that wineries or, or whatever. But, well, they're not making money selling records. Clearly not, yeah. Clearly not. We just talked about that last night, too, in terms of like what I'd love you to ask somebody the question like, well, how does, like, not, not what their financials are really, but like how, how is it happening now? Is it like 10% records, 90% concerts, you know, 30% merch, 10% records? Like, what's the what's the makeup of what their income is? It's definitely not what it used to be, and it, they're definitely having to find new ways to make that up with things like meet and greets, and even like Dave Ellison does a thing where you can go to dinner with him beforehand. Oh, really? It's like five or six people, and you pay, and you get to go and have dinner with him. So I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, so you mentioned last night, Kyle came over, and uh, as we normally do, uh, he'll bring some vinyl, I'll bring some vinyl, and we'll listen to it for a while. And uh, We listen to Chinese Democracy, I think, one and a half times through, and then we listen to uh, Van Halen 1, which was really good, mm-hmm. and uh, Eric Clapton, One More Car, One More Rider, which I think we both... Uh, and then we listen to a little uh, Widespread Panic, Dirty Side Down, and as far as like just from sheer sound quality, that was probably the best one we listened to. Yeah, that that was recorded excellent, or it came through really, really well on vinyl. Um, I felt like uh, what else did we listen? We listened to Black Crow's "Shake Your Money Maker" just a touch. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I agree. That one probably had that was the most balanced sound, and it seemed like it was mastered for vinyl. Whereas in some cases, you kind of question it. Um, I mean, the Van Halen one sounded fantastic, considering it's nineteen seventy eight. Is that right? Well, and it was mastered for vinyl. So. And it was mastered for vinyl. It was all, and that was the reason why I brought it over. Because um, a lot of times, you know, one time I brought over, of course, Allison Chains Unplugged. Um, but I wanted to pick out an album that I knew was, was of course, recorded all analog because it had to have been. And it was purposefully mastered for vinyl because it had to have been. <laughs> you know, so um, that's why I pulled that one out of my collection. So and that was a, what is that, 41 years old? And it sounded great, you know. But uh, yeah, I agree. I thought Dirty Side Down from Widespread Panic sounded really, really good too. All right, Kyle. So, if people people that have listened to you before know that Pink Floyd's your favorite band yes. of all time, is it safe to say Guns N' Roses is number two? I would say they're definitely in the top five. And for the longest time, I would have called them my number one. And I mean, I've, I've probably mentioned this in the past uh, when we talked about guns before. I mean, Slash is the reason why I picked up guitar. You know, I mean, that's he's the uh, in the video for Paradise City when they played at the Pasadena Bowl opening up for Aerosmith, I believe. Um, maybe it was the Stones. Was Aerosmith? I think it was Aerosmith. Anyway, um, 
that was just seeing that video just made me think, oh my God, like I just want to be a rock star. The same way that people have the, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan kind of moment, that was my moment. And so guns had a huge, huge influence on me. Um, probably a bad influence, to be fair, considering how I was relatively young when I when I picked them up. And I was right around the Tipper Gore, you know, parental advisory thing happening. So you could still find albums without the sticker and some with it. And so I strategically uh, purchased my albums uh, without my parents uh, and uh, went without the sticker. So... Um, Except that I believe the Usual Illusion One and Two was released with uh, with a sticker like pre you know printed on the thing, but um so I couldn't be sly on that one. But yeah, I mean guns, especially for the longest time of, before Pink Floyd, they were my number one for sure. Pink Floyd came along, my taste changed a little bit. Um, it's they probably dropped to number two, maybe three or four. It's really hard to say, but definitely top five of all time for me. All right, so we won't rehash. What all led up to to this album, to the recording of this album, because I think everybody knows that after the spaghetti incident, Gilby Clark was let go, and uh, there were just numerous personality clashes. And it's at some point in like ninety six, ninety seven, Duff and Slash, yeah, either Slash, quit or were fired. Slash quit over sympathy for sympathy for the devil. So, and this actually, not that we'll talk, spend a lot of time talking about this, because this this album was recorded from uh, nineteen ninety seven to two thousand seven. A lot of people say it's you know 14 years, but it was a 14-year gap between the albums. But this one was truly recorded from 97-2007. But a significant moment in Gunn's history was when Slash left the band. Uh, not that not that when Steven left it wasn't important. Not that when Duff left it wasn't important. And not that when Gilby left it, or and Matt it was not important. But um, but when Slash left, you know it's it's hard to argue the the they're they're a power duo in rock. You know Axel and Slash. And he left um, because Paul Tobias, who was Axel's childhood friend from Indiana, who he had started Hollywood Rose with, and I think they wrote "Sunshine of Your uh, Shadow of Your Love" together, which was just recently released on that double, not double album, uh, deluxe edition mm-hmm. of Appetite. So Slash goes in <coughs> to record the uh, "Sympathy for the Devil," of course, the Rolling Stones cover for the movie "Interview with a Vampire." And uh, if you've if you've seen that movie on the ending credits when they're riding across the bridge, uh, they pop the tape in the in the car and it starts playing "Sympathy for the Devil." To me, is an excellent, excellent, excellent cover of that song. Uh, but Slash uh, went in to record his bits, and he found out later that Paul Tobias had uh, had over uh, recorded over him in some pieces, and then totally took him out in, in others. And he just flat out had the had the solos. So that led to the riff there uh, that that finally officially broke him up. I'm fairly confident that was '96. And so, really around that time, um, and it was, it was I think it was Duff that left shortly thereafter. Uh, due to some some demands that he just he couldn't he said he couldn't deal with the erratic nature of of guns and because he had a brand new child and you know just couldn't deal with that and so he eventually left as well I guess realizing it was officially over in his mind uh, probably when Slash left but yeah starting in '97 is is probably uh, where we need to where we need to really pick up so the musical landscape in '97 was a lot different than '87 when oh, for Appetite sure. for Destruction came out. So one of the big things that Axel got into was the um, he was starting the industrial uh, music. He got into it, you know. They they he snuck in. Um, what's the song? My world. My world on Usual Illusion Two. That's just basically straight up industrial. And uh, when you say snuck music. in, like the other members of Guns, when can you imagine this? When Appetite, not Appetite, when Usual Illusions came out. 
the other members of Gund found out about, this is what's reported at least, uh, found out that My World was added as a last track on Use Your Illusion 2. So can you imagine being in a band, listening to all your, your uh, all the, the things, the, master, the mastered pieces and all that, you get them all back, you send your approval in, because this is part of a band, it's part of a business, and then that gets slipped in. And especially considering it's like it sounds like somebody slipped in at the very end. It sounds nothing like it because it is that industrial feel. And Axel, you know, um, he started talking about wanting to do industrial even before. Um, he's I mean, he specifically said, "I want to sound more like Nine Inch Nails." And you could see on the on the Illusions tour, especially that Japan uh, live concert, he wears a uh, I think it's Nine Inch Nails Sin. It says S I N, but it looks like N I N. Um, he wears that shirt on, on that tour. And so that, that was the beginning, you know, that was the genesis of what you ultimately became uh, some of the core found, uh, sounds of, uh, of Chinese democracy. Definitely there's a ministry influence. Uh, another big industrial band at that time would have been Filter that uh, came out. So, <clears throat> what, go I'm ahead. sorry, one more before you move on from that. 1995, Passengers. It was a U2 and Brian Eno collaboration that was a side project from U2 called Passengers, and it was uh, original soundtracks one. You can pull this up on Spotify. I'm sure your other streaming services. I know for for sure Spotify has it. Um, that was he uh, Axel said that was an influence as well. And so just it, it's not to me it's not as evident as Nine Inch Nails, but if you listen to it with that thought in mind, you can kind of hear how he was doing that. And I thought that was a weird one for him to throw in as an influence, but it's certainly there. Well, he was wanting to go for a much more, even bigger sound than what he had on the Illusion albums, which I think from what I've read, some of the members of Guns were a little uncomfortable with how kind of grandiose the uh, mm-hmm. those two albums became. But you and I talked last night, we both liked the epics. I, I like those ep- Estranged, Locomotive, Coma. I do. I do too, absolutely. I mean, and when you think about what, what became an epic in popular culture, it was November, it was the trilogy. Uh, Del James, one of Axel's friends, and the band photographer for a while, I think it was the band's photographer for a while, uh, wrote a short story called Without You. And you can hear Axel say in several of the lines, um, he, he ends with the line, Without You. And so it was based on a short story by Dell James, but uh, uh, Don't Cry, November Rain, and Estrange were part of that, that three-song trilogy, which they strategically placed across the two albums for the deep fans who were interested in that piece, uh, as if you weren't going to buy the two albums anyway. But um, those were the popular epics that they that people knew about that are just casual fans of the band. But we were listening to Breakdown yesterday. To uh, We didn't listen to Coma. We talked about Coma extensively. Locomotive, those are some of my favorite songs on those albums, you know. <clears throat> Yeah, and you were pointing out to me, I didn't realize the spoken word at the end of Breakdown is actually dialogue from a 1971 movie. Yeah, The Vanishing Point. Uh, Cleavon Little uh, said that, and I've never I've never even seen the movie, but it is, just go look it up on YouTube, guys. I mean, it is such a profound monologue that, uh, that he's saying about, um, I guess just, it's just a bunch of race cars basically at the end of the movie that he's kind of commenting over. But um, just just written down is such is such a profound is a moving monologue, and so I love you were commenting like it's kind of weird how Axel throws in the like what was he on when he wrote that I was like well actually he he went on anything <laughs> he was clearly a fan of the Vanishing Point movie in seventy one, but uh, in the same way that he sampled in Struther Martin from. Uh, uh, cool Hand Luke, one of my favorite movies of all time at the beginning of Civil War. That teases back into Chinese democracy, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. All right, so much about this album is surrounded in kind of folklore and 
urban legend, and sometimes it's it's hard to get for sure answers on a lot of this stuff about the recording of this album because it was recorded and re-recorded numerous times with completely new lineups, sometimes patchwork new lineups. Uh, There's probably six or seven guitar players at some point, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think three drummers uh, played on this. Uh, was it Josh Fries, uh, Brain, and uh, Frank Ferrer? Uh, would be the drummers Brian Mantia as well. Oh, Brian Mantia. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So yeah. So it um, there, there's numerous drummers on it, numerous guitar players. Tommy Stinson kind of seemed to be uh, uh, he, he was, seemed to hang around on bass. I mean, I know Dizzy is the most Dizzy and Axel were the two Dizzy Reed and Axel were the two you know common threads throughout the whole thing. But Tommy Stinson from the Replacements was pretty much there the whole time. Um, but yeah, from the guitarist side, you've got Buckethead. You've got Richard Fortas, uh, who's still with the band now. Uh, Ron Bumblefoot Thal, which most people know him as Bumblefoot. Brian May even came in. He wasn't a member of the band, but he he came in and played on Catcher in the Rye and a, and a, a one I think one or two other songs uh, that ultimately did not make the record. Can you imagine asking somebody from you know Queen? <laughs> you know? I mean, that's his like his favorite band. Yeah. Um, Dave Navarro came in as well as Paul Tobias again his childhood friend which was in Hollywood Rose and, and all that so alright so Kyle there's really no easy way to tackle kind of the recording of this other than just to kind of get into it because it is literally all over the place it is and I'm going to do my best on this one not to speak with authority you know whereas on other albums I feel totally comfortable because you could legitimately look it up there's so many rumors around with this I think we should address the rumors and the real stuff with equal intensity you know and just kind of point out when we may be wrong I mean we just don't know because this one's all over the place (laughs) well why don't you kind of take the lead on this then since you're you'll you're I mean we both have a good working knowledge of the of kind of how it was recorded, but there's there's a lot of little sidebars, yeah, um, that that we can take on it. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I don't know. You may have to co-host it with me instead of me taking the lead. But I mean, I, I got to admit, one of the common threads with us was clearly Axel's approach. In multiple interviews, uh, no matter where we deviate from from the story, in multiple interviews, multiple people have said like, you know, Axel's a perfectionist. Love him or hate him, he does not want a bad product out the door. And part of the, I guess, the a little bit of the drama and, and the, the iterative process that this album uh, was, uh, was because of his perfectionism. And so, uh, it's, I mean, it's hard to argue. I mean, when you've got, you've got albums like Appetite and The Illusions and, um, you know, I, I don't want to discount Live Like a Suicide um, or just lies, period. But because um, there were some really good songs there, of course, but Live Like a Suicide was live. Um, and I will say while I'm on that topic, so this, this record was produced by Black, uh, Black Frog and Geffen Records. And do you know who Black Frog mm-hmm. is? So I had to look this up as well because it, it was uh, the first time when I was preparing for this, the first time that I came across that. You know, they're, they're, the band's label collectively was called Uzi Suicide, and that's where they released that live EP, Live Like a Suicide. Well, when the band dissolved, this this became now just Axel's version of Uzi Suicide. So it's just owned by Axel. Well, I assume it's just owned by Axel, but it's not certainly not owned by the rest of the, the band. So Black Frog is, is who that is. Um, but anyway, one of the common threads with this is Axel's neuroses. Um, and I don't mean that in a, a negative way necessarily, but just his, his, his uh, constant compulsion for this, this perfect experience that he wants to create. And you got to love him for that. Um, 
I don't want to say I'm a, I'm a diehard Axel fan and he can do no wrong. I, I don't want to say that at all. But at the same time, you, you really, really, really have to appreciate his process through all this. And possibly some of the frustration um, that that he himself had to deal with. You know, I mean, I feel like he, in some cases he's he may be a, a victim of, of a circumstance that he creates, but he's creating it, I think, for a very well-meaning, you know, uh, uh, it's a well, it's a well-meaning thing. You know what I mean? Um, so let's start with the cover art. Cause that may be like, it, that's, that's, um, there's not a whole, a whole lot of confusion about this, uh, or, or any, any sort of rumors or whatever. This one's pretty straightforward. So the cover art on this one, is just a sepia print of a bike, uh, with a basket, um, and like just leaning up against the wall and it says guns and roses and graffiti and that was actually taken outside of the wall city in Hong Kong and I'm going to mispronounce this Kowloon walled city so something like 50,000 people or something live within like a single hectare or something like it just a very small if you looked at it on a map it just looks like like it'd be miserable to live inside that little city and so apparently I don't know if it was staged and done like that but that was where the thing was taken um which is interesting considering it got banned in multiple countries including China because he mentions uh, the Gulan Fong and and several uh, several things that uh, including the title of the album Chinese Democracy, which he got because there was talks of you know there was talks of that in the in the in the media and uh, I guess in the popular culture for the the ten year span that that album was coming together uh, for a while it was just called Two Thousand Intentions uh, so and I think that was sort of a hint towards you know it's nineteen ninety seven. When is this album coming out? Well, it's 2000 Intentions. I'm making that up. I have no idea, but it certainly makes sense to me. But it was very shortly Or the album was going to go in 2,000 different ways. <laughs> That's right. That's fair. That's fair, which ended up being true. Um, but anyway, so they ended up changing it to, to Chinese Democracy. So I personally feel like this is a... Um, I think it's a really good album. Um, I... Th- it, it may be a little imbalanced in times, but I totally get that as well. Like I said, the mastering engineer had a heck of a job ahead of him um, to, to try to make this thing sound like it came from one place and in one complete picture. And, uh, and so I, I, feel like, um, I feel like there was a couple of misses, and we can get that in the song-by-song breakdown as we go through that. But ultimately, I feel, I feel like the album holds together really well. But when I heard it, it had a guns feel to it. But Axe was not a musician in in the same sense that the rest of the band was when they bring it together. He's certainly a musician, of course, um, but he but he wasn't um, in terms of how it got composed uh, because you can definitely tell where the slash influence was missing, or where the where the the bass uh, the Duff influence was missing, or the Matt slash Steven influence was missing from this. Uh, there's a lot of there's some electronic drums, there's some looping and things like that. So um, to me, it didn't have quite the feel of that. And if they had released it as an actual solo effort, I think it would have been far better received by hardcore fans and maybe even some casual fans. Uh, because then you take it away from that brand that is Guns N' Roses and you let it sit on its own. And I think that's a big reason why a lot of um, when people, when bands break up like this and, and uh, it, the, the artist will decide to release solo efforts or rebrand or something, um, for that, for that same sense. But Axel said, well, he, he was in some interview at some point said, why would I abandon that brand? Like it's already, there's a brand built into it, you know, and I can understand that logic, but in the same regard, is there, how many people 
know Guns N' Roses and don't know the name Axl Rose. You know, like, I mean, there's a lot of people who probably, like, you like Journey? Well, yeah. Tell me the three lead singers they've had. You know, like, there's not a there's not a ton of people who can do that. They just know that they, like, don't stop believing or something. You say Guns N' Roses, what's the next thing that comes to your mind? Axel or Slash. But either way, I would I would I would beg to differ that ninety eight percent of the people know who Axel Rose is. So you cannot tell me that he wouldn't have sold incredibly well off of that. Plus he owned the band the brand name Guns N' Roses. He could he could have done anything from a marketing standpoint on that. So um I don't know. I just I feel that this album would have been better as an Axel solo album. It could have been called Axel Rose Chinese Democracy, and I probably would have bought it a lot quicker. I was one of the people, and I'm a I'm a big Guns N' Roses fan, but I didn't buy this immediately. I was one of the people who bought it out of the five dollar bin at Best Buy because Best Buy, you know, got pulled into a contract to buy I think it was a 1.3 million or something records with with no option to resell back to the the record company. And so I was one of the $5 people. And I'm a hardcore Guns N' Roses fan. I just I just wasn't feeling this one, you know? Well, there was no way it was going to live up to the hype. You've heard about it for 11 or 12 years. There were all these starts and stops. You know, they played on the MTV VMAs in 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, they immediately interview Axel as he's walking off the stage. He acts like it's about ready to come out. And then shortly after that, Buckethead leaves, and you know you have various members leaving, and then you start hearing what's going to come out in like 2005 or whatever. It mm-hmm. doesn't come out, and they hired Tom Zutat, who managed the band initially, mm-hmm. to come on board and try to help get it out. And then he had some issues with uh, Axel regarding a, a private screening of a film or something, and Axel got upset with him, and he was dismissed. And to got to a point to where Geffen pulled the funding because they were 13 million dollars in. They told Axel, it's up to you to finish it and get it out. Mm-hmm. And so it finally comes out. And if you remember, Dr. Pepper had that thing that if, if it comes doesn't come out, if it ever comes out, they'll buy everybody a Dr. Pepper. Yeah, and so, yeah that was in, in March 20, uh, I'm sorry, March 2008. Uh, one of the VPs at Dr. Pepper made that comment. He, he said, God, if, it, if Guns N' Roses releases the album this year, we'll give everybody a free Dr. Pepper in the U.S. And... It was, you know, and this is one of those, like, is it rumor, is it true, who knows, but supposedly, I've read in some places that that was all planned. It was the band's management and Dr. Pepper, for whatever reason, had decided to get together and do something like that. And I don't know if, I guess it was planned to have, like, we'll have a, a baby, like, public feud or something, you know, and and, and so uh, that supposedly, you know, ticked Axel off and he it pushed him to get it through. And then as a result, which this album was released November 23rd, 2008. As a result, Dr. Pepper's website crashed so to, to have the coupon, or at least they said it did. I mean, I don't know, but it, they, they started getting flooded with these free Dr. Peppers. So they had to set up a, a toll-free number to get people, uh, to allow people to get their free Dr. Pepper so that they can, you know, honor their deal. But, but way before Tom Zutat came in, they, Geffen had offered Gun, uh, Axel a million-dollar bonus to get it done, I think, by the end of 99. So that's how close that Geffen thought it could have been had Axel you know, pushed it, I guess you could say, uh, to the extent that you can push art. And, uh, but of course that didn't happen. And there was multiple instances of that, but finally they, uh, Geffen pulled their, uh, their money in 2005 and just said, you've, you know, it's up to Axel to finish this thing out. And that's what he did though. To his credit. I would love to hear all these like 
other recording sessions because and they also re-recorded Appetite at this time. Yes, with the band that they I forgot who I was in the band at the time. It just changed like every year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they re-recorded Appetite. I'd you know I'd like to hear some of these other sessions. Um, from what I can re- read, it was completely redone three or four times. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, so the the appetite thing, uh, what Axel said was that was to, a way to get the band to gel together and to get used to recording together. And rather than, I guess, having the pressure of re- recording a, and composing at the same time, it would be to re-record that. Now, are there ulterior motives? Maybe. I mean, I hope as a fan I get to hear some of those one day. If they truly finish the thing, I'd love, or even just a few tracks, I'd love to get that as a bonus one day uh, in some, you know, some future release. At the same time, you know, do I want Metallica to, to re-record Kill 'Em All? A little bit because their recording qualities on that album is terrible. <coughs> and um, and as you know, so I'd love to hear them, but at the same time, it's Kill 'Em All, so I know what it sounds like. And you know, it's and this is to me even more iconic than that album, one of the the greatest debut albums of all time. I don't know if I want to hear a re-recording of it, you know, or maybe I would just treat it like a cover version, like we were listening to Lizzie Hale, a uh, hailstorm last night, uh, out to get me. And, and uh, anyway, so it went through multiple iterations. Um, I don't know what the exact number is, and I'm not sure if we could even you know, find a source for that. But I would say three or four probably sounds about right in terms of how many different producers came in and tried to tried to work with them, how many fired, and those sorts of things. But. So you're saying it took you a while before you bought it. I remember buying it the day that it came out. Uh, there was a Best Buy like a mile from my house. I was there. Boom. Got it. Put it in my CD player in my car. I don't think I listened to it all the way through. Pulled it out and was like, that was terrible. <laughs> Threw it in the floor and honestly probably didn't even give it another chance for a couple of years. Yeah. It just, it rubbed me the wrong way in every way possible. I was so upset about it because so looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially because, like, I mean, Buckethead's a phenomenal guitarist. Yeah. I mean, the people that he had, they weren't, oh, they they were weren't just bums off the street. These yeah. guys, these guys could play, and it wasn't until about three or four years ago that I, for whatever reason, decided to give it another another spin, and it is honestly, it has steadily grown on me ever since then. I, I still listen to it every couple of months. I'll, I'll throw it in and listen to it, and then we listened to it last night on, on my vinyl setup, and um, it just kind of reaffirmed me. It, it's a, it's not a great album. It's a really good album. Yeah, and I I went from like I said I don't think I could finish the, the first time I listened to it. I think I got to scraped and was like this is terrible and just threw it in the floorboard. Mm-hmm. But and I think amongst a lot of people have the same feeling. It just was built up so much. It was kind of like after Fleetwood Mac records Rumors when Tusk comes out. It's a double album. It's been built up. So there's no way you can follow that up. Yeah, it would be tough to follow up. The Illusion albums, if this came out in 94. Right. But it's, you know, 15 years since the last true studio album of original material came out. First of all, their fans' tastes have changed. Mm -hmm. The music business has changed. How it's marketed has changed. There's really no longer MTV to go to. Nobody is watching videos at this point. And so all the traditional means for getting it out there aren't there. And then it doesn't help when it comes out. Axel goes underground for like four months and nobody sees him. Yeah, yeah. So I can tell you, this is one of those, you know, that was kind of like 9-11. I can tell you where I was for for that. Um, I mean, I I was in Best Buy parking lot in Meridian 
and got the CD, put it in my CD player that I had in my, my, my forerunner at the time. And as soon as I heard Chinese Democracy, I loved the intro, I loved the build to it. Um, and then I heard his voice. And I'm used to, like, I mean, I have played the Illusion albums. I had to have listened to them front to back a hundred times. I mean, and I told you, you know, I'm a, I'm a guitarist, and so I, I had a six-disc changer in the 90s. And five of the six discs was Guns N' Roses. And the six disc was like my, my hopper disc. I would just put in Ozzy or Metallica or whatever. And I would literally hit random and then play whatever song came up. That was the way that I practiced. So I, when I say that I've listened to those albums, if it wasn't a complete session where I sat down and listened, I have listened to tracks from those albums hundreds and hundreds of times. I know exactly what his voice sounded like to me for that era. Which, of course, that era when it was released in 91, it was, what, 89, 90 when they were recording a lot of those songs. Um, so we haven't heard his voice for the most part, um, other than they they released "Oh My God," which was the soundtrack for um, what was that? The end of days. End of days. Yeah, and then of course uh, "Sympathy for the Devil." That was the last two times we ever heard anything from him. And to me, his voice that was the first impression that I had was his voice just didn't sound right to me. And a lot of a lot of singers. You, know, you listen to Meatloaf in the late '70s versus Meatloaf now. He just doesn't have it anymore. Not the same way that he did. Um, I'm not saying he may not be still appealing now, but it's just it's just different, you know, because you you mature. Uh, there's very few artists in my head that have actually gotten better with time. David Gilmour is one of them. He sounds, I mean, seems like a songbird as far as I'm concerned. But um, anyway, uh, but I can tell you where I was. I popped it in that Best Buy parking lot and listened to the first song, and I was like, ooh, what is this? Um, I, I liked it. I really did. But I was just when I'm ready to hear an, a screechy Axel voice that I it, I just didn't quite hear it, you know. Um, and again, I didn't feel it was bad. It was just different, you know. And so uh, his voice that is. And so I gave the you know I don't even know what song I got to. It was definitely through Street of Dreams because uh, I I had heard about that song being like that could have been on you know you illusions or something in terms of the the setup of it and the piano. But I definitely made it that far. But I'm like you. Like, I uh, I got, you know, maybe halfway through and just said, well, that was interesting. And then I just, it didn't take me. You know, it didn't it didn't pull me along with it the way a lot of albums that I love do. And so, yeah, I abandoned it for the longest time. Um, I don't know how long it took me to pick it back up, but it, it grew on me for sure. All right, so we've talked about it enough. Let's get into it track by track. All right, let's do it. Um I'll, let's see, the opening track is the title track, Chinese Democracy, has one of the better intros and build-ups of a song that I've heard, and we were noticing last night when we were listening on vinyl, we were hearing some things that haven't really heard before, kind of in the background. There's a lot of little ear candy in that build-up, and then you go straight in to the, uh, guitar, the guitar strumming, and it's the, the pace of the guitar slowly gets faster and faster and faster until the song kicks in. This is the one I would have had as the lead single. It may have been the lead single. I can't remember yeah, I the order know. of release. I w- because this is as close to s- as anything on the album that you would hear on Appetite. I feel like this would be a good bridge between from what they were to what they were going to go to. We also talked last night. It's very cool to see them play it now in concert. Slash breaks out the BC Rich, the green BC Rich, and, and plays on it. Uh, fantastic opening track. Uh, and I'm going to approach this a little bit different than you on these songs. Each one of these song, uh, songs, I'm going to say it's a keeper or it should go. Because mm-hmm. I have yeah. zero middle ground. 
And so I'm going to trim some of the fat off of it. This one's definitely a keeper. I like that. I may be able to help you a little bit on that. Uh, so I just looked up while you were, uh, just because you questioned whether it was the, the single. It was the single. Okay. So the Guns N' Roses singles chronology, Sympathy for the Devil, 1994, Chinese Democracy, 2008, Shadow of Your Love, 2018. This is the only single from the album. So uh, that is pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is, I mean, very, I wouldn't. I don't want to call it an iconic opening. It's not like Welcome to the Jungle. You know I mean? When you go to a hockey game or something, and I'm not a big hockey fan, but the few times I've gone, when they're about to throw down and fight, you hear Welcome to the Jungle, you know, and it just gets you pumped up. Right. You go to a football stadium, you hear it. Uh, this is not one of those. So it's not iconic, but at the same time, it's a great buildup. And there's a lot of little, like you mentioned, ear candy that I've, I mean, I've listened to this on my my big system before, and I don't think I picked up on the little, like, little voices in the background, little sound effects and things. Uh, but yeah, this is, to me, is definitely a keeper. Um, it's got the most songwriting credit across everybody. Axl Rose, Josh Faris, Paul Tobias, Tom, uh, Tommy Stinson, Dizzy Reed, Robert uh, Frink. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Fink. Uh, Karam Costanzo, which is the producer of the album, uh, or one of the producers, rather, of the album. Um, the album had just as many producers as it did guitarists, by the way. We had Mike Clink, who produced the at least Illusions 1 and 2. I don't know if he... Did he, he did do Appetite? Appetite? Yeah, yeah, he did Appetite. Uh, youth, uh, Sean, uh, Sean Beavum, Beaven, um, that person, uh, I think it was Tommy Stinson who did an interview. He said of all the thing, all the people who came in and out of this album, uh, most of what Sean touched from beginning to end made the album. Despite everybody else coming in and shaking stuff up, he was, if you had to give one person extreme credit for what was on the, or true credit, I guess you'd say, for the majority of what was on the album, it was that it was that guy. But anyway, um, and then Eric Cadu, I don't know this person, but anyway, most writers' credits on, on any of the songs was due to that one, and I don't know where all those people come from and why it was that long, but maybe because it was the title track, that had been a long, around the longest and had the opportunity for most people to kind of tease into it. So just a keeper for you? Yeah, a keeper for me for sure, yeah. All right, the second song is Shackler's Revenge, and this was released on, like, Guitar Hero, which will kind of date the album. Yeah. So you go first on this one. So Shackler's Revenge, I like this song a lot. Um, so it's a keeper for me. Um, this is one that, uh, just a little fun fact on this one, so the the guy, uh, and I won't honor him by saying his name, but the guy, the Virginia Virginia Tech uh, shooter, um, killed thirty people and I think wounded eleven or so others. Um, he wrote a play called Mr. Brownstone, and uh, which of course the the fifth song from Appetite for Destruction uh, is called Mr. Brownstone, and the play is about a group of teenagers that uh, the seventeen I think they're sixteen seventeen years old that go around after school uh, drinking playing poker and all that and they have plans to kill their teacher. Mr. Brownstone, and so uh, when Axel found out about this, this was this song was his response to that. And you can kind of, I mean, it's not explicit. You know, uh, I, uh, Axel is not, despite his Scottish roots, he's not a, a Gaelic, um, you know, songwriting style. He's not going to tell you the whole story uh, the way that you would hear in like an Irish folk hymn or something. But if you know that history and you go look at the lyrics. You can see uh, you can see some of the the links between it. So to me, this one's definitely a keeper. What probably you? the most aggressive song on the album. Yeah, yeah. It also so. at times has uh, probably the most industrial feel to it. Mm-hmm. But the, you, you almost get the sense they were trying to take some of that industrial shine off. But it is what it is. It's in the style that it was written. 
I really like it though. It's a definite keeper for me and the the album is two songs in and it's off to a great one two start. Yeah, I feel like if you if you ever question anything we're saying about the industrial feel uh, for this album and you're you're missing the pieces throughout the album that's kind of sprinkled, listen to this song. To me this one that even the opener um, and I, I won't I won't audition for the band right now by trying to sing it, but but the opening little uh, I don't even know what I don't know if it's a synthesizer or if it's a, but it's a drum part as well. Um, but that to me like that could have been an, on a nine inch nails or even maybe kind of maybe a tool um, album. So for sure, if you're missing the link between industrial music and this album, go listen to that one song, and I think that it'll uh, you'll see what we're talking about. All right, song number three is better. The first time that I heard this, I go, are they covering a Pink song? <laughs> and I was like, woo, this is not good, skip. And I held that opinion until I saw Guns N' Roses in New Orleans yeah. with Slash and Duff. And they played this song, and they reworked the arrangement at the beginning of it. But then, once I heard it live, I appreciated the brilliance of it. Mm-hmm. One of the top two or three tracks on the album now for me. Yeah, a definite keeper. This is a definite keeper for me, and I did not have the reaction that you did. I, I like that. That was probably one of my favorite songs when I heard the album. Uh, if I had to, if I was forced to pick one, that might have been my number one. Um, and uh, yet, yeah, like you, like you know, when you see an album, and this especially happens with me with Roger Waters. You listen to one of Roger Waters' albums, Radio Chaos, um, Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, Amused to Death. You listen to those. And just listen to the album. I'm not a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of Roger, but I don't get what he's trying to do on the album. But when you see him do it live, or even when you... I've heard bootlegs of Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking Tour, which Eric Clapton mm-hmm. uh, was the guitarist, Phil Collins was the, was the drummer on. You go, go download a bootleg of that, and like you're like, oh, I get it. I understand exactly what he was trying to do. He just didn't capture it on the album very well. Fish is the same way for me. Uh, they just They cannot capture their live thing. Uh, that they do, which is more spontaneous, arguably, uh, or actually not arguably, it's definitely more spontaneous than what Roger does. Um, so I totally understand what you're saying. To me, seeing them live, it just made this song better for me. It didn't. It didn't change my mind. It just made it all the much better. Uh, this one uh, for the guitarist out there. This has got a lot of sweep picking in it, uh, where you kind of rake your you rake your your pick down the strings at, at the same speed that you're you're moving your fingers down the strings. Sometimes you do three or four strings. Sometimes you do all six. But essentially, in a very you know milliseconds worth of time, you can get you know eight to ten notes in, and it sounds really fast. And so you some of the run-ups in this song are from that. And I was really interested to see. I tried. I try my best not to look at set lists before I go to shows because I like the surprise and I like 
you know, I like the effort that the musicians put into it to take me through what I would call the hero's journey of the of the saying. I, I want to, I want them to take me somewhere uh, throughout that, and I don't want to, I don't want to know it. You know, to me, to me, looking at a set list is almost like ruining a movie for me in terms of uh, if I if I really knew what to expect. But this one I knew was coming up because I was uh, I knew that they I had heard that they were playing some from because uh, that was a big thing that the fans talked about. Like, are they going to play any of the the that release when they were doing the Not in This Lifetime tour? And when I heard it, I thought, well, that's not Slash's playing style. Slash is not a sweep picker. And so, as it turns out, um, Richard Fortas was the one that who carried, who picked up that side of things. And I don't, not that Slash probably couldn't have done it, but that's clearly not the very like Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith, blues, hard rock style of Slash. But um, but anyway, uh, this this is definitely one of my favorite songs on the album, and has been since I heard it. All right, the next song is the first epic of the album mm-hmm. Street of Dreams this like you said is one that was rumored to possibly be in its infancy stages when Slash was still in the band mm-hmm. but uh, that's just one of those things that that's out there I don't necessarily know if that's true this one is a for sure keeper for me now we were noticing last night and that the high end of Axel's vocals on this are a little a little rough at times uh, but the song has an epic feel, almost in a strange type feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's another one's a complete keeper for me. Yeah, this is a definitely a keeper for me, and I feel like the rumors are probably true on that in terms of it being a- around uh, while well, Slash was still in the band. To me, this is one of the ones that if you had if you had made me if they had released this and said this was a, a carryover track from the Illusion Sessions, I would have believed that. You know, I mean, minus the musician Dizzy, Dizzy Reed's on it, so it actually would have been believable from that standpoint. Um, but if you had told me that the same way that that the Pink Floyd released the Endless River, and for deep fans, you know that the Division Bell released the '94 by Pink Floyd, uh, it was originally going to be released as a two disc set. One of the sets was going to be an instrumental part. Um, and then the other side was is actually, I don't know if it was truly one instrumental, one over. It was going to be sprinkled more with instrumentals throughout, but it was going to be a double disc, a double album. And uh, as it turns out, they scrapped that idea, went with what you got, which is the Division Bell that was released in 94. But the leftover bits from that were then used to create a mostly instrumental album that was the Endless River. And so if you had told me that this was a leftover that just didn't make it because the running time on... Um, you know, the Illusion albums was almost 75 minutes a piece, or at least it was 75, which is the upper end of what you can really do on a, on a CD, um, I would have totally believed you. I would have said, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. It sounds like that they sat down and recorded Estranged and then maybe didn't have enough wind in their sails, but they still knocked out Street of Dreams. That's what it sounds like to me. Keeper? Definitely a keeper for me, for sure. And I will say to comment on his voice, though, it did get a little... To me, if you're, again, if you're questioning the same way, if you question our industrial uh, comments about Shackler's Revenge, if you're questioning Axel's voice comments, listen to the song as he does hit some high registers. And I don't think he quite hits it. On the vinyl, though, I'm questioning whether... I mean, we discussed this a little bit last night when we were listening to it. You know, vinyl records, the dynamic range that you have in vinyl records is the greatest on the outside of the record. And then as it gets further and further into the record, you have less needle movement. And so a lot of times, the typical song structure that you hear that we have on an album now is like hard-hitting heavy song first, hard-hitting you know heavy song second, third. By the time it gets to the fourth, fifth, or third, fourth, fifth songs, you start getting softer songs. And that's the way we expect records to happen now. Um, and it, maybe it's because it's fun to have a hard-hitting record. Maybe this is just total coincidence that we love hard-hitting uh, 
you know, rocking songs when the, when the album uh, first uh, starts spinning. But because they they we haven't had to think like that in music for a while, the fourth and fifth songs on a vinyl album, unless it was specifically mastered for it, which this one probably was, uh, or I guess they probably had to remix it. But it's still this is a heavier hitting song in those chorus parts. And it just, I don't know if the vinyl, maybe the vinyl couldn't keep up with it, because I didn't notice that quite as much when I've listened to this on digital forms. So that's a that's a big question in my mind as well, but it goes still without saying that if you're questioning the Axel vocal piece, to me this song represents kind of where he was, uh, where he's getting to um, with, uh, what we're, with the point we're making with that. Before we leave this topic, though, um, to me, Axel... Um, the next song is the first one that I like would scratch off the record and that is If the World so before we leave this part um, the vocals for this album most of the vocals were recorded before 2000 they were recorded between 97 and and 2000 of all the producers that came back in um, they said that they went in and really re-recorded music that 90% of the vocals were already done. So when, when, we, when you talk about Axel's vocals at all, they were locked in time around that, around that period of time. So it wasn't like it was 14 years after and they, he recorded vocals the last day. A lot of this was already done. So anyway, just a little interesting tidbit uh, about the recording of the album. All right, so the next song is If the World. I hate it. I'm scratching it off the, the, the playlist. It's one drum loop after another. It almost sounds like a R&B song at times. Yeah. Uh, this is one I'm like, there should have been a guy in the room that raised his hand and said, nah, let's don't do this one. Yeah. I mean, I got to admit, when you first introduced the idea to me that there may be songs that you didn't like on it, because um, you know my approach to, like, if I like an artist, I like an artist, and I like everything they put out for the most part. Otherwise, I don't adopt them as an artist. Uh, my world is the exception in this case. Um but yeah, when I don't, I don't hate it. But I will say that, you know, the wind's out of my sails after Street of Dreams, and like to me, this is—I don't want to call it filler. I never go straight to it to listen to it the way I might go straight to Better, or the way I might—you you, kind of have to go straight to Chinese Democracy if you don't, you know, just doing nothing. You're going to listen to Chinese Democracy when you hit go. So, I do agree with you though. There's something about this one that's just not the same as the others, and it doesn't move me the same way. But I also, I kind of feel that way about Young Lust on the Wall. I always listen to it, just because I listen to the wall usually as a complete piece, unless I'm playing guitar or something. I, but I never go straight to it. I just don't like that song that much. But I will but I love the wall, and I love the fact that that song's in the wall, because it means something to me, you know? So I feel the same way about this one. I really like this album. Um, I think it's underrated. I... I, but I don't love that song though, so I'm I'm with you on that. So if I had, to, if you're making me pick, I would say yeah, we can drop that one. Their next one is "There Was a Time." I would scratch this one off the list too. Uh, at, at times, it starts to kind of grow on me a little bit, but then it's yeah. one step forward, two steps back. This is another one that just sounds really dated, man. It does sound dated, and I think part of the part of the the lyrics are about a. a previous time i mean and so to me it, it it does sound dated in that way i do really like the way he sings there was a time i mean i think that's if you wanted to pick out a good moment for his vocals on this album it's not all the words leading up to it but when he says there was a time and again i'm not going to do you the honors of singing that right now to try to mimic it but 
Um, I really like, I think his voice shines on that little moment when he's singing that one line, there was a time. So I, I like it. I mean, it, I wouldn't I wouldn't get rid of it, but I, 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 I get it. I mean, to me, the fact that it's, it's stuck next to If the World makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I mean, you might as well throw those two together as long as we're throwing things away. All right, the next song is the second epic on the album, Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. Which is, you were explaining a lot of it more in depth to me last night. Yeah. I've always liked the song. This is one of the songs that Brian May recorded with them, and his guitars were scrapped from it, which doesn't make any sense. But uh, an, another epic, yeah. a one that you might could hear on the one of the Illusion albums. Um, um, yeah, yeah, you could hear this. It has a little bit of that feel to it. So what it, it the song is kind of kind of deep. So why don't you go through? That what what he's trying to get to with this one? Yeah. Um, well, I, actually, I'm not sure if I'll be able to fully tell you that part, but I can tell you some of the history of of his affection, I guess, for Catcher in the Rye. So, Catcher in the Rye is the book by J.D. Salinger, um, and I'll tell you the story or so it goes. Um, that it's about an angsty teenager, and a lot of folks read Catcher in the Rye as a part of their school experience or whatever, probably when they're angsty teenagers themselves. And so, a, a lot of people can really, really um, I guess connect with that character, Axel uh, more so than others probably because I he's still an angsty like fifty year old or fifty something year old so I can fully appreciate that he was a, a very angsty teenager. This book was very very special to him. I mean, it's special to a lot of people. Uh, I mean, this is the book that uh, Mark David Chapman, who killed John Lennon, had in his his bag that he uh, he took to the murder with him. So or took to the you know where where he got him. So I mean, um, so it's definitely. Uh, Definitely an influence from that. I don't know if I could give you any sort of strong comments about um, about how how the song came together or anything like that, um, because it's uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that I've got a lot of the history of it in terms of or what he's trying to get at. But in terms of where where he got that from, that's what he was um, that's what he was going for was so, uh, to uh, to honor that. So it's a keeper for you. I think it's a keeper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely, definitely a keeper for me. All right. <clears throat> I told you I had strong opinions on songs. The intro to Scraped may be the worst intro in the history of music for me. It <sighs> is terrible. It's just a series of high-pitched squeals from Axel that, sat, that get progressively worse with each one. Which, if you take those away... My opinion of the song goes up a little bit, mm-hmm. but I can't get past that somebody thought this was a good idea to put this on tape. That's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, this is... Yeah, I mean, in terms of a hero's journey, like we start off really, really strong in this album, and then by the time you get If the World, There Was a Time, you're going down to the low. Catcher in the Ride, to me, is it belongs right after Street of Dreams. Um, and then you go back kind of down to scrape. So it's a little confusing, I agree. It, to me, it's still part of the tapestry that is the album, so I, I hate to I hate to just say get rid of it, but um, but I'm with you. I, I never go straight to it to listen to when I'm listening to it all the way through. I appreciate that it's there because I'm familiar with it now. But, um, yeah, not not a fan. And it has a very dated sound as well. Yeah, yeah, it does. All right, so the next one is another one that I would not put on here, Riyadh and the Bedouins. And it has something to do with his ex-brother-in-law or something like oh, really? that, right? I don't know. I, I've read, uh, anyway, uh, now it gets the award for oddest song title. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah. In fact, I knew how to pronounce Bedouins because it's just a, a term that I've used in you know in other places or I've seen it in literature. But I, when you said Riyadh or what, however you pronounce that first one, I was going to correct you and say no, it's Raid in the Bedouins because I thought it was Raid, R-A-A-D, and that made that made far more sense to me because a Bedouin is like a. A, a bedlam, abysmal place, or whatever. Uh, so I thought, well, you're raiding that. Well, I don't, I don't know what the hell Riyadh is. <laughs> I think it's a city in Saudi Arabia. Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay, well, I think. Uh, I don't know how all this one comes. Somebody listen. All right, well, so I, yeah. I have it as a don't put it on there. What are, What are your thoughts? Yeah, on? I mean, to me, don't put it on there. I mean, yeah, to me, all this is this is like if there's a B side, then these are like D sides, maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. All right. Um, the next song is "Sorry," and I was telling you last night. This is the sneakiest, sneaky good song on the album. Yeah. When you first listen to it, eh, but then you start listening to that chorus and the bridge, and there's a lot of layers to that. And now it's a song that I'm like, no, this has to stay on the album. This does not deserve the cutting room floor. Right. Sebastian Bach singing some backing harmony on, on this, and you know Sebastian was kind of the cheerleader for this album before it ever came out. Because uh, they it had it a Eddie Trump was live on the air one time with his afternoon radio show, and Sebastian was the guest, and he was talking about being on this, and he mentioned, like, hey, Axel's just a few blocks down, and so he get, he goes and calls Axel, and this is when Axel's just, you know, on radio silence, and Axel just shows up and sits in with Eddie Trump for a while, and they, you know, they talk. Was, it was two and a half hours, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, um, this one, this song always had piqued interest in people before it ever came out, because Sebastian, of course, you know, he's got a very bombastic personality. He talked about how much he liked the song, and uh, th- this one, this one could have been a single. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. This was, um, this was probably one of my top ones, uh, top top songs of the album. But definitely, I feel like it's, I feel like the album's picking up steam again. You know, when when we get to this one. Uh, so yeah, I definitely like this song. I'm, I was trying to recall, they played when in the Not in This Lifetime tour, they played "If the World." Better and Chinese Democracy, or they play Sorry. They played this. I love. I've seen a video of them playing Sorry. Okay. Um, they oh, this may, I love. Yeah. Sorry, I, I was thinking if the world. They is. may have played Street of Dreams. I know they played Catcher. I think they played Catcher in the Rye. Too. Really? Okay. At our show, they just played those three. The three though. <laughs> so the next song is one that was known about before, well before it ever came out, because Hall of Fame Mets catcher Mike Piazza had a leaked copy of IRS and he played it on the aforementioned Eddie Trunk show. Man, if I was going to leak a song from this album, this is not the song I would leak. No. Not not what you want people to have this their first uh, taste of, uh, of, of of the song. And you've got to think Mike Piazza is not dumb enough to do this without Axel's permission. Yeah, I question how... Is it publicity? Is it like a... It's almost like a guerrilla marketing campaign. Yeah, is it cool to do this? And Yeah, I'm not... I don't know. Yeah, so IRS, I would, I would never let this on the album. To me, it has no place on it. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel the same way. Just not, not my favorite song. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they were going for on it. You know, um, I don't know if it's like an angsty kind of like a get in the ring song, but softened up or something. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about this because he talks about IRS and FBI and federal case, and I don't know. I'm not sure. All right, so the next song we both agree is, to me, well, I think you're going to agree, this is kind of the masterpiece of this album, and that is Madagascar. Yeah. If you remember, they showed up on the MTV VMAs in 2002, 
and Jimmy Fallon introduces them, and they start off with uh, "Welcome to the Jungle." Mm-hmm. It's your first time seeing Buckethead. It's first time seeing the new band, and you got Buckethead, Robin Fink, Tommy Stinson. Um, who else would have been on guitar? Then was it Paul Tobias? I don't know. Or, and he had, I think, you had Brain on um, drums, and of course Dizzy Reed. I think Chris Pittman also on keyboards. Anyway, so they just play like the first verse and chorus of "Welcome to the Jungle," and then the synthesizer hits and they break into Madagascar. Now, if I were advising Axel, Madagascar would not have been the song I would have chosen for this situation. I would have done... Not for that all. Not for the I would have done Chinese Democracy. Yeah. Of course, this is still six years before the album comes out. And then they go right back, they go into a Paradise City and and finish it off. But I know we talk about the industrial sound that this album had and like overuse of drum loops and stuff. To me, this is a song where they got the drum loops and the uh, audio spoken word clips. It married perfectly with the song. Yeah. If just from an actual musical standpoint, this is probably my favorite song on the album. Yeah. So they pull clips from Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream, um, and Why Jesus Called Man a Fool, his speeches that he did there. And this is where we hear from Struther Martin again, Cool Hand Luke. Uh, so it's kind of making a little bit of a reprise from Civil War. And I'm, I was a little curious as to why he chose that. Because had he left that one out, it would have had no link at all to that. And so I was, um, I just wonder what the artistic thought was behind you know, when he did that. But um, Mississippi Burning, Casualties of War, Seven, and, and Braveheart are all things that he sampled from. The only ones that I could pick out if I wasn't literally reading that list because I wrote it down earlier... Um, or looked at it earlier. I Have a Dream is clearly in there, and then Cool Hand Luke is clearly in there. The other pieces, I would have had to guess where it was coming from, but you can tell it's sampled, and that may be why the drum looping were. That's what may, that may be why it's a good marriage, because the whole thing is kind of sampled, at least in that part. But yeah, I agree. This is a... Uh, this is another epic one, um, not an epic length or anything, but it's a it's certainly an epic uh, an epic song. Uh, and probably when you asked me, you know, if uh, what what song would I pick to play on this thing, I said you know probably better or Madagascar or you know or Chinese Democracy. So uh, yeah, this is definitely one of my favorites. It definitely deserves a place on the album. All right, so the next song I have to admit is this I love, and I never listened to it all the way through until I saw the uh, the reunion version of the band play it mm-hmm. starts off with just axel on the piano and i kind of mad at myself for never listening to it all the way through because it kicks in with a blistering guitar solo mm-hmm. and i remember when they uh announced they were getting together and there was rumors they were gonna play some chinese democracy songs everybody was like they have to play this i love this is kind of axel rose being queen yeah, yeah. um and uh where in the past yeah i would have not kept it on here to me Honestly, this would be a great way to close the album out. But uh, they didn't close the album out with it, but I would definitely keep this on the on the album. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree. This was... Um this was, I think I was commenting to you, so when we go, went to go see him in New Orleans, I was just looking up the set list so I can I make sure that I got this right. Uh, th- this was sandwiched between New Rose, uh, which um, I don't remember if... Duff didn't sing that one, did he? Did yeah. He sing Attitude. Is that the one he sang? For whatever reason, when people started, the reason why I'm pointing that out is that when people started getting up to go to the bathroom because it's mm-hmm. you know not Axel singing. If you're a casual fan, then you get up and you leave or whatever. And so they were still kind of gone to the bathroom and kind of slowly coming back in. So you know, if you imagine the Mercedes-Benz Superdome, it's it's kind of emptying at this point a little bit because you've you've got a flood of people going to the bathroom and stuff and getting drinks. 
And so that that song, at least for that set list, was sandwiched between New Rose and Civil War. And so I remember, I distinctly remember, because we were pretty close to that on that show, I distinctly remember Axel, after he got through singing that song, he kind of like shrugged his shoulders and was like, oh well, because there wasn't a huge audience reaction to it. Um, you know, it certainly, for the most part, whenever when they stopped playing, it was a big applause, you know, of something. But that one would just, he kind of faltered a little bit. And it's a function of, if you're a casual fan, you're not going to know it. And they played it right after one, a song that Duff, uh, I think it's, I believe Duff had sung. He usually does Attitude, but maybe he did New Rose. Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, to me, uh, it's, it's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say I hate it and it needs to go away. It's, it's fine, you know. Um but also, I'm not going to say I love it either. All right. The last song on the album is Prostitute. I, I just, I don't have, this song just doesn't do anything for me. I know bits and pieces of it, I think, have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I almost feel like they're like, oh, we got to have one more song on here. We're going to throw that in. Yeah. I mean, to have a run, this, this album has a run time of 71 minutes. And, you know, we were just talking about this the other night as well or last night as well, like, to me, the perfect album is 43 minutes, you know, because, like, that's, it fits on both sides of an LP, I mean, you know, one side of an LP is 22, the other side's about 22, so about 43 minutes, 44 minutes is the perfect length for an album. It captures your attention for that amount of time. Um, at the end of Dark Side of the Moon, I'm like, oh my god, that was the most amazing thing I've ever heard, because it was Dark Side of the Moon, and you want more, but if they gave you one more, you would not have wanted that one more. It, it leaves you with the perfect amount of want, you know? It, for this album to have a runtime of 71 minutes and for multiple producers to have said, I worked on over 30 songs, I mean, I'm not saying to turn uh, music production into an economic statement and to try to, like, you know, divide it up into six albums or, or to do, like, a Peter Jackson's, like, let's take The Hobbit, one of the books of <laughs> Lord of the Rings, the smallest of the books of the Lord of the Rings, the least uh, the least journey of Lord of the Rings, and let's turn it into three movies or something, or two movies. I, I can't remember how many they were. But when you watch The Hobbit, it is like, it feels like a long movie because he, I feel like they had to slow down the pace of it and throw in a bunch of songs and stuff just to be able to, to release it as two different things. So to me, to have a 71-minute album and you got some throwaway songs and you know that you've got a bankroll of other songs, they could have sprinkled this across. I don't care if it's Chinese Democracy Sessions. I mean, supposedly there's a trilogy out there. And Axel, right before Guns got back together, was announcing that they were going to release the Chinese Democracy um, remix and then I assume from all the other different artists who had performed on it, as well as a true sequel to Chinese Democracy. And he supposedly got enough material for another one. So, like, I don't, I just don't understand why, when you could have ended on Madagascar, can you imagine that send-off being Madagascar rather than it being This I Love and Prostitute? And then you could have thrown away some of the others that we didn't like either, which, of course, this is us remaking an album. You would have landed squarely at, like, 50 minutes and had a complete statement that everybody loved, you know? So I question the logic on this one as well. So I did the math. I cut all of my songs. 43 minutes. That's 43 awesome. 43 minutes. <laughs> so I just did a better version of Chinese Democracy. Then. Yes. Yes, you did. That's awesome. So, and we didn't even mean to do that. That was like a bonus part of this episode. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, Kyle, I've been wanting to do an episode on this one for a long time because it is 
so divisive and people have strong feelings one way or the other. Um, uh, I think that kind of came out on our views, uh, not on the album, but on, on songs. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So, uh, Kyle, once again, thank you for, uh, for coming on. Uh, anytime you want to do an album, you're always more than welcome. Hey, maybe maybe Chinese Democracy Part Two will come out and we can do this one again. You know? Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that, whatever guns that new guns on. album that they're supposedly working on. Yeah, I don't know if this is going to be like a tool moment for them, and we have to wait a decade. Um, or actually, is this funny? It's not even a tool moment; it's a Guns and Roses moment. But um, yeah, I'm I'm hoping they. I mean, there's back in April of this year, uh, Slash sent his uh, Silver Jubilee Marshall head off to. Uh, to uh, some amp engineers to get it retooled for a recording session they were going to have. So, I mean, the rumors are true. They got together, and there's there's a backlog of stuff. So I'm looking forward to what that brings. Well, from what I understand, the studio time is booked for November when they get done to this run of shows in October. Duff, mm-hmm. I think, has kind of said that. And he said it's going to happen. So Yeah. It's we'll just... see. I, I hope it does. Um, please follow us, everybody, on Twitter at Digital Killed and like our Facebook page and Instagram and subscribe to us on whatever platform you do so choose. We will be back next week with a few more interviews from um, the Rockin' Pod, and then Chris and I will get back in our regular rotation. Thank you so much for listening, and take care.